So the word of God is proclaimed from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read the entire uh, verses through, and then we'll get into God's message this morning. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens, not the football team, the birds, the ravens, to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens, God's catering service, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I might drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, While you're up, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days, the jar of flour was not spent, neither the jug of oil became empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And our second scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 27. And Jesus is our speaker here, and he is speaking to those in his hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. 
and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. This morning, I hope to speak to those of us who feel like we're barely holding on. We've come here today, and we are tired, worn down, worried, maybe a little overwhelmed. We would say, by God's grace, we're holding on, we're getting by, but we're barely getting by, barely holding on. And we've read a story of two people who were barely holding on. The story is about the prophet Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And their story is found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And the reason the book is entitled 1 Kings is because we are entering an era in the history of Israel in which they were ruled by kings. And when Elijah comes on the scene in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, the northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by a king named King Ahab. And in 874 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. King Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the neighboring kingdom to the north, to form a diplomatic alliance, to secure peace for his kingdom. And when King Ahab and Jezebel were married, Jezebel did not just move in with the typical stuff, couches, clothes, cookware, cars, and cats. Jezebel... If you've ever been married, you may, you may have thought your spouse came with some baggage. But let me tell you, whatever your spouse brought into the relationship, it's nothing compared to who Jezebel brought into her marriage with King Ahab. She moved in with 400 prophets of the god Baal and 450 prophets of his girlfriend, Baal's girlfriend, Asherah. Asherah and Baal were the pagan gods of fertility or life. And so not only did Jezebel come with all the standard things, she brought into her relationship her gods and the prophets who served her gods night and day. The belief around Baal and Asherah, for those who worshiped, served, and sacrificed to Baal and Asherah was, if you make sacrifices, if you serve and worship these gods, then there will be life in the land and life in the womb. Plant life, animal life, and human life life. They were the gods who they believed controlled sun and rain. King Ahab put pagan priests on government salaries. King Ahab, together with Jezebel, used government funds to build pagan altars across the kingdom. In parallel, 
they were killing and driving out the prophets of the Lord. This was the first time in Israel's history in which the government went about systematically creating a religiously pluralistic society and a society which worshipped false idols. It was government-sponsored spiritual contamination, confusion, depravity, and decline. And in 1 Kings 17, the Lord sends the prophet Elijah to demonstrate to Ahab and Jezebel, to their armies of prophets, and to the people of the northern kingdom, that Baal and Asherah are false gods, and the Lord, Yahweh, is the only true living God. And not surprisingly, the name Elijah means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. So how will God go about proving to the people who worship the gods of nature, the sun god and the rain god, that indeed he is sovereign God, Lord of Lord and God of gods. And this is God's plan. God will show that they are imposture gods by sending a drought upon the land. He will show that these gods have no control over storm or rain by sending a drought upon the land. And Jesus told us in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, in the days of Elijah, the drought lasted 3.5 years. Some of you remember we had a drought this summer. It was about a 3.5 week drought. And many of us watched as our gardens wilted, our grass dried up, a few of our plants died. In an agriculturally driven economy, no rain shut everything down. I'm sure you heard about the layoffs uh, last week Amongst Meta and Twitter and Amazon, thousands and thousands will be laid off in our country. When there was a drought, unemployment would rise to 50, 60, 70 percent in the kingdom of Israel. The fields were bare. The sheep, cattle, and livestock died. People lost everything. People even lost their lives. The more things change, the more things stay the same. King Ahab and Jezebel had an, an opportunity for introspection, right? Perhaps to ask the question, what was our role in the coming drought? What perhaps have we done or could we have done differently to avoid drought? But instead, King Ahab and Jezebel, like many politicians today around the world, decided to find a scapegoat. <gasps> I know, you can't believe it. And their scapegoat was the prophet Elijah. It was the prophet Elijah who spoke this word, who is to blame, and Ahab and Jezebel went on a mission to search and destroy Elijah. And the Lord knew that Elijah's life was in great danger, and so the Lord sent Elijah into hiding in a ravine called Cherith. And what I want you to understand about the prophet Elijah, as he is going into hiding, is his emotional, mental, 
and physical state. In hiding, Elijah is isolated. In isolation, emotionally, Elijah is barely holding on. In hiding, Elijah is being hunted. He's in great danger. Mentally, Elijah is barely holding on. In hiding, Elijah's physical resources are running dry. Physically, Elijah is barely holding on. And so the question is, where is God? How will God provide for the one, for Elijah, for us, when we are barely holding on, when we find ourselves in a nationwide spiritual and economic crisis and we are barely holding on? And the answer is the Lord provides naturally. First, the Lord provides naturally. He sends Elijah spring water. He has a brook. He has clean water to provide for his needs. And the second is the Lord provides supernaturally for the one who is barely holding on. As we read the story, and you heard multiple times, the Lord sent ravens to feed the prophet night and day. Can, can you imagine what that would be like? Just, just step into the story for a second. You can empty out your fridge and your, and your cupboards. Go donate all your food. You have no food source. There is no provision. There are no grocery stores in the area. You are in hiding and the Lord sends ravens and they are dropping off bread and meat. I don't know about you. When I think about bread and meat, I think about sandwiches. So from the sky is falling a turkey sandwich. From the sky is falling a roast beef sandwich. I know Elijah was kosher, but perhaps he was introduced to ham and cheese sandwiches. Can you imagine how Elijah felt as the birds were dropping sandwiches from the sky? In my family, we're teaching our children to pray before meals. My three-and-a-half-year-old has taken my cue. When the food is hot, you pray swift prayers. Praise the Lord. The Lord has already provided. Let's indulge. So she prays, thank you, God, for this day and for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. It's, it's becoming a bit routine. My wife and I are thinking, how do we get her to put her heart and soul into it? Well, for Elijah, there was no need to get him to put his heart and soul into his prayers of thanksgiving because I believe as he was barely holding on, he was crying out and praying with tears of joy as sandwiches rained down from the heavens through the ravens. There was praise and amazement in his heart as God provided supernaturally while he was barely holding on. But I believe that there perhaps was something else. In his gratitude, in his praise, I think that there was puzzlement for the prophet. The reason I say that is because Elijah the prophet knew the word of God. He understood God's law and God's commandments. There's no doubt he was familiar with the words of the second law, which is the book of Deuteronomy. He knew what Deuteronomy chapter 14 said. In Deuteronomy 14, verses 11 through 14, the Lord commands his people, you may eat all clean birds, chicken and turkey, but these are the ones you shall not eat. 
And he lists many birds. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture. That's, who, who would want to eat a vulture, right? But the kite, the falcon of any kind, and here it is, Deuteronomy 14, 14. You shall not eat any raven of any kind. The reason I bring that up is because the raven was considered unclean. And in, according to Old Testament law, when something that was unclean touched something that was clean, the thing that was clean, the turkey and cheese sandwich, became unclean, which means it would be forbidden to be eaten because it was unclean. And if you ate anything that was unclean, it made you unclean, impure, unholy before God. So why did God choose the raven? He could have chosen a clean bird, yet he chooses something that is unclean as his chosen vessel to provide for his people. In drought and crisis, God provides for the one barely holding on through the unclean. Here's the application. Today, God provides financially through flawed companies and unclean government programs. God sends the ravens. Today, God supplies emotionally, provides emotionally through imperfect parents, flawed therapists in unclean nursing home and hospitals. God sends the ravens. God uses unclean people, places, and programs to provide for the ones barely holding on. And instead of sticking our noses up at what we deem to be unclean, imperfect, and flawed, perhaps we can thank and praise God for using the unclean, yes, even the unclean, to provide for those of us who are barely holding on. So how does this further apply to, to you? to me. The New Testament scriptures teach us that when we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, the unclean are made clean. The unrighteous are made righteous. The unholy are made holy by God, before God. It's already done and no one can undo it. But I have to confess, sometimes I'm still waiting for God to do it. Is anyone else still waiting for God to do it in your own life? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sin makes us unclean. And it makes us wonder, can God really use unclean old me? I'm not worthy of God. Surely God wouldn't call and use the unclean. But God is the God who sends the ravens. God uses the unclean to sustain those who are barely holding on, which means God is sending you, sending me, sending us to feed those who are physically, emotionally, and spiritually barely holding on because God sends the ravens. God uses the unclean as God's vessels to feed those who are barely holding on. Don't say you're not worthy to be used of God. Don't disqualify yourself because of something that you're struggling with in your life. God sends the ravens. God sends us. So God meets Elijah with the ravens, which brought amazement, praise, and puzzlement. 
His next words to Elijah must have brought fear and shock. First in verse 8 and 9, the Lord says the brook dries up in the ravine and the Lord sends Elijah to Sidon, Zarephath. Have any of you ever heard to the, south, the southern part of the United States referred to as the Bible Belt? Have you even called it the Bible Belt? Well, if, you're go, if you were being sent to Sidon and Zarephath, you were being sent to the Baal Belt. You were being sent to the epicenter of dark magic, psychics, fortune tellers, witchcraft, and demonic possessions. It's also Jezebel's hometown. She was born and raised in the Baal Belt. And it is a place where Elijah will encounter spiritual darkness, demonic forces, and physical danger. This is the part of the word of Lord that invokes fear among the prophet. It also makes Elijah vulnerable. Here's the second point. God provides for his people in a land of spiritual darkness and personal vulnerability. Sometimes God sends us to places we don't want to go, to people we don't want to see or talk to, and it's in those places, through those people, that God provides. And now the next part is the most shocking part. God sends Elijah to Sidon and Zarephath, and then promises to provide through a widow. Being a widow in that day was different than being a widow today. It's hard to be a widow today. It's difficult financially, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. In Elijah's day, it was even worse. The widows were the poorest of the poor. When you think widow, it was a sentence to physical depravity. If anyone was starving in a drought, the first ones would be the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. Yet God says to Elijah, I will provide for you, I will feed you through the poorest of the poor, the widow of Zarephath. That must have shocked the man of God. The widow is barely holding on physically. She's starving to death. The widow is barely getting by emotionally. She's facing imminent death of her son and herself. The widow is barely getting by mentally. She is engrossed in her fears. Of course, we all would be. So Elijah goes to Zarephath. He sees this widow at the gate collecting sticks for fuel, for a fire, to cook her last meal. Of course, his brook dried up, and so he says to the widow, would you please get me a glass of water? He's thirsty. Okay, that's understandable. Yet then he says to someone who doesn't have enough for herself and her son, go and make me a pancake, a cake, uh, whatever this, whatever this whole wheat flour cake is, go make me one of those, and then you can make one for your son and yourself. 
She has a handful of flour. If you want to understand the quantity of a handful of flour, when you get home, take a handful of flour out and dump it on your counter and ask, and ask yourself, how many pancakes can I make with a handful of flour? And she has a little bit of oil. You wouldn't be able to make very much. Further, the widow is not a follower of the God of the Bible, not a follower of Yahweh. Elijah tells her, put your faith in my God. My God says that the flour will not be spent and the jar of oil will not run dry. All the widow has is a promise from the God of the Bible, a God who is not her God. What do you think the widow will do? Common sense tells us that she, not being a worshiper of God, would not put her faith in the promises of the God of the Bible. Yet, this widow puts her trust, her confidence, and faith in the word of God through the prophet Elijah. And when she does, the one who is barely holding on is provided for by the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, and she has supernatural provision to provide for the people of God, the prophet Elijah. Is that amazing? Can you believe that? God sends the prophet to the widow of faith so that the prophet can, one who is barely holding on, can be provided for by someone who is barely holding on. The application point is this. In what area of your life are you barely holding on? Mentally, if we're talking about mental health, is that the area of life in which you're barely holding on? If we're talking about your emotions, perhaps your patience is wearing thin with grandkids and kids. Perhaps that's the place you're barely holding on. It's financial. Prices are going up and checks are not keeping up and it's that area where you're barely holding on. The Word of God challenges you today to put your faith in Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking to you about some sort of intellectual ascent, something that cannot be seen. I'm saying when you put your faith in God, you show your faith through action. Because faith that does not act is dead, but faith that acts is alive and it brings life into our lives. So show me what you do in your area of need and by that we'll see your faith in God. I know you're barely holding on. Come on. You don't think I'm barely holding on sometimes? Aren't we all? Pastors are men. We live in the same world. Here's what God showed me. In that very area where I'm very holding, barely holding on, it's that very area where he'll use me to provide for another. It's through his provision, not through my provision. In that very area where you're barely holding on, that area of need, perhaps that's the area where God is calling you in to offer what little you have to someone else who's barely holding on. And what little you have to offer is enough because God is the one who's providing it. It's enough for today and he'll give you enough for tomorrow.
God calls those who are barely holding on to provide for those who are barely holding on. I want to close here. Actually, let's be honest. I don't want to close here. I want to keep going. But I'm not going to. Through the Holy Spirit, the last one is self-control. So I'm going to close here. In coffee hour, I'll, tell you, I'll give you the fourth point of the sermon. So wonderful. Um, but I'm going to just do three points today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for growing me into a man of God and showing self-control. Let's close here. I want to go back to Deuteronomy 14. Because this is kind of the season when we really focus in on what God would have us give. Deuteronomy 14, verse is 22, says, You shall tithe year by year. You ought to give 10% of your income year by year. Give 10% of your harvest to the Lord yearly. And then in verse 28, he says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And he says that the Levite, the priest, the immigrants, the fatherless, the widow, those who are within your towns who are hurting shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God, so, so lay up this tithe and here's, here's the promise. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Lay up your tithe and here's the blessing. The Lord your God will bless you. Here's what he's saying. Give 10% to God and God will bless the other 90%. Give to God first and God will give back to you. Provide for the kingdom and the king will provide for you. And tithing is a principle that outside looking in makes no sense. It sounds insane. Why, why would I give 10% of what is mine? But the principle of being generous and receiving the generosity of God in return is biblical. And you know that I don't preach prosperity gospel. I know people who serve the Lord and do it well have given their lives to God and they're some of the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere. I know people who have served the Lord faithfully. Their 401ks became 201ks, okay? So, so we, just, we also have to know, understand that there's a biblical principle. God is blessing us, thanks be to God, in all areas of our life. But this is not some sort of manipulation of the Lord. But God is faithful. And God comes through on his promises. And it's not just because he did it for Elijah and a widow in Zarephath in 874 B.C., I can stand here before you today and tell you God is faithful because I've experienced it personally. About 10 years ago, one weekend in December, this is while I was living in Pennsylvania, I went to a church conference out in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And on my way back, it was a Saturday night. You know you don't want to break down on the side of a highway 150 miles from your house at night, but I did. My car... It started smoking, overheating, melting, blowing up on the side of the road. I can just tell you, it wasn't good. That night I was towed back to my home in Pennsylvania. And I remembered, in the midst of having a car that was no longer a car, carless, I remembered that I had made a commitment to my church at the time to give a, a tenth, a tithe. And I had been putting that commitment off. I had forgotten about that commitment until that night. I remember going to sleep that night thinking, I can't give. I don't want to give. Now I need that money for a car. That morning I woke up, and I'll tell you, 
That checkbook weighed 5,000 pounds. I could barely lift it up. The pen weighed 6,000 pounds. I could barely write that check. And I got to tell you, it wasn't much. But for me at the time, it was an awful lot. It wouldn't be much for you, but it was a lot for me. I wrote that check. I put it in my pocket, sitting in church service, and I thought to myself, am I really doing this? Am I? No, don't do this. You need this for a car. But thanks be to God, I dropped that check in the offering plate. That afternoon, I went to my friend's house, watched football with my friends, did all that stuff. I didn't have a car, so he gave me a ride home. On the ride home, as I'm getting out of the car, he gives me an envelope. All I said to him was my car had broken down earlier that day. He and his wife hand me an envelope. I get into my apartment. I open the envelope, and the envelope is for the exact same amount of money that I had dropped in the offering plate that morning. That's a true story. You know what that did to my faith? You know what that taught me about the Lord? Here I was barely holding on, yet the Lord was using me to provide for the barely holding on, and the Lord showed me that the Lord provides for the barely holding on. It, helped, it has helped me trust God in so many areas of my life. And also, when we're willing to put ourselves out there, in whatever area we're barely holding on, we get to be used by God. We get to experience God in our own lives. Do you know what happened to that widow of Zarephath when that oil and that flour didn't run out? She was changed. She was changed. There's no doubt she became a worshiper of the Lord. She learned to serve. She spread the word of the Lord. And so I just want you to know this morning, for those of you who are barely holding on, that God holds on to the ones who are barely holding on. And God uses the barely holding on to bless and show the world Elijah's mission, which is our mission, that the Lord is still God. Thanks be to God. Amen.